When you're ready, let's start this journey. Welcome to BCPL Unstacked and Let's Unwind with New York Times bestselling author Grady Hendricks. Let's find out about his writing process, all about his new title, Final Girl Support Group, Love of Horror, and Libraries. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. Hey, you guys. Hello. Could you introduce our listeners to your new title, Final Girl Support Group? Yeah, uh, the Final Girl Support Group's my new book that comes out on July 13th. I think it's my fifth novel, something like that. But it's a, it's basically about final girls who are the women who survive horror movies uh, and make it to the final credits. And I was always kind of curious as to what happens after that. And so this is about a bunch of final girls who've been through the bringer and they're all in a support group. And they started to sort of wonder why 20 years later, they're still obsessed with something that happened to them in high school. And as they begin to drift apart, someone begins to kill them one by one, because as we all know from slasher movies, there's always a sequel. Makes sense. Uh, kind of like a Highlander kind of thing. There can be only one in a, in a final girl. Yeah, well, you know, or if you're in the dorm that drip blood, there are zero. So, yeah. you know, it all, it all depends on which slasher movie you're in. In the Final Girl Support Group, the Final Girls are loosely based on the survivors of slasher films from the 70s to the 90s. What is your personal favorite slasher? Oh, for me, it's Black Christmas from 1974, directed by uh, Bob Clark, who also directed uh, Porky's and A Christmas Story. Um, so yeah, but it's it's sort of regarded as a proto-slasher, like one of the early ones, and uh, right in there with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I believe. It really is pretty amazing. Um, you know, Olivia Hussey's the final girl. She's phenomenal. Margot Kidder plays the alcoholic friend who gets killed early, but is a hell of a lot of fun. She is. Um, yeah, and, and you know, it's a great killer. You're never quite sure why Billy's doing it or what he even looks like, but you just sort of see him as an eye through a crack in the door. Um, it's just it's just a genuinely good movie. And it's Canadian. I've got a soft spot for Canadians because I'm married to one. And it also takes place at Christmas, and I'm a big sucker for Christmas. So, oh, then John Saxon's in it. So, you know, it's hard to go wrong. Final Girl Support Group took you roughly eight years. Is that an average amount of time that it takes for you to finish a story? No, that's way too long. Um, usually my books take about a year to write, start to finish. Um, Southern Book Club took a little longer and the one I'm doing now for next year is taking a few months longer. But yeah, Final Girls had a weird road to getting to readers. I wrote, I was looking when recently and I did the first draft, the files dated like, I think it's like January 9th, 2014. And it's just no one wanted to buy it for a really, really long time. And, 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 you know, in, in a way they did me a favor because I don't think it was the book it needed to be quite yet. Um, it was kind of like a really good title in search of a book, but um, it, it really came together in this version. I'm really happy with the version that's going out. But yeah, I, I tried to sell it in 2014 and my publisher wasn't interested. I tried it again in 2017 and they were so not interested. They didn't even read it. Um, and then, um, I sort of trunked it and my manager who does all my, my screenwriting stuff asked if I had anything that he hadn't read. So I gave him that and he got really excited about it. I did some more rewriting. Um, I did more rewriting with my agent. It went out on submission and Berkeley bought it. And the reason I went with Berkeley because a couple of people were bidding on it is just the editor there really identified some problems with it that no one else had seen, which I was like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, she's totally right. It's, it's kind of like if someone had pointed out to the Empire that the Death Star had those like vents, you know, that were vulnerable to, to, to proton torpedoes. They could have just fixed that. Saved a lot of trouble. Uh, and so, yeah, and so it just really took me a while to get it right, but it also took a while to find someone who wanted to publish it. And I think that's because Final Girls went through a period where they really got oversaturated in pop culture. You know, there were, there were TV shows, there were books, and, and they all kind of treated them like these campy pop culture icons. And I really, that always bugged me. I always thought like, you know, I wanted to kind of take them seriously. Like these women have had a tough road to hoe. Like, you know, what's that really like? I thought that was way more interesting than treating them as sort of like a one-liner. In the, the Death Star designer's defense, they're exhaust ports. They have to be there in order to vent stuff. Otherwise everybody dies from overheating or oxygen or carbon dioxide overexposure. So they have to be there. 
about how many different books do you have going on any given time? Usually just one book, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the new one right now for next year. And, and when that's done, I, I know the next two or three I'll be writing after that. Um, but I usually do one book at a time. I'm, I'm usually write books in the morning and then the afternoon I'm working on uh, screenplays or, or whatever else there is, articles, stuff like that. And Lynette is a final girl who is also the narrator, and she's a bit of an unreliable narrator. She's agoraphobic and paranoid with a few trust issues, understandably so. Um, and the fellow survivors are some of the few that she interacts with at all. How did you decide that she was going to be the one to narrate? Well, I mean, I'd argue that everyone's an unreliable narrator. Like, I don't know who a reliable narrator is. Um, you know, uh, I think if someone puts themselves forward as a reliable narrator, they just invalidated their own credentials. But no, Lynette was was the, the voice that came in because I really... I always thought the most rational response to being a final girl was would be to completely weaponize your life. Like, you know, and actually it's funny, I was talking to um, Adrienne King who plays Alice Hardy, the final girl in Friday the 13th. Um, and she really likes the book a lot, but she was saying that um, she had a stalker for a while after she did Friday the 13th. And she actually did the same thing Lynette did, which is have a lock on the inside of her bathroom door because the only way she felt safe sort of taking a shower. Um, and so I always thought the response to that, I always thought Lynette's response was totally reasonable. Um, you learn to shoot, you make your home defensible, you make sure you'll never have that happen to you again. Unfortunately, you know, the longer you lead a life like that, the the more dysfunctional you might get. Um, and so, but Lynette was a lot of fun to write. I mean, it, it, writing her is easy. Um, all these final girls were fun to write, but Lynette especially, like, it's easy for me to see the world through her point of view. I mean, you're talking to someone here who I've spent most of my adult life figuring out how to make whatever location I'm in zombie impregnable. And this, you've kind of touched on this a little bit with what you just said, uh, with uh, unreliable narrators and reliability. At some moment, somebody tells you they're reliable, they immediately become unreliable. Do you find it easier or harder to hit the plot points when you're using somebody who's, as, as they're going along, you're revealing more the, the maybe mistruths or misrecollections uh, that they had? Oh, well, you know, for me, like plot points, that's usually the first thing to go. My first draft of a book usually has a lot of plot points in it, and, and they all go because they're terrible. Um, and what I realize is the stuff that becomes the plot point, the, the stuff that the story turns on, I hate saying plot point, just because it, it gets a little deceptive, but the stuff the story turns on is character stuff. And with someone like Lynette, who has so much baggage and so many issues, you know, having those character moments that everything hinges on that sort of spins the story in another direction that's easy i mean it's 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 the stuff that lynette doesn't want to talk about and her getting forced to to deal with it um so yeah so she she makes the plot points just by existing you started out in in the the literature i've seen here you started off this book with a question what the what what was wrong with me is the kind of question mm, you were yeah. starting with now that you've gotten to the end of it what's the answer yeah, well, you know, I mean, the fact is, I really, when I started writing this book, I really had to sort of look at the fact that, like, I, I do kind of believe that, like, you are what you eat to some extent, you know, um, like, and, and I realized I'd spent so much of my life watching horror movies, which meant I'd spent a lot of time watching people get murdered for fun. And I didn't know what that meant about me, you know, what, what, what's wrong with me indeed. Um, and so I really wanted to sort of try to figure that out and, and just sort of think, spend time thinking about what these movies mean and what they meant to me and all that stuff. And, and what I really realized is the stuff I find myself watching, like I, I like a bleak slasher as much as anyone else, but, um, the ones I come back to, the ones that have a real place in my heart, the ones that that mean a lot more to me than just a fun time with a six pack are the ones where I'm really watching the person survive. They're the, they're the ones that have like a happy-ish ending. Um, I'm not one of those people rooting for Jason. Everyone wants to see Jason on Friday the 13th because Jason makes things happen. He's He's proactive, as they say. He is an active antagonist. But, uh, and he doesn't spend a lot of time processing his feelings. He just does things. Um, and that's kind of what you want to see in a movie. You see something too introspective and you wind up with Before Sunrise, which is fine, but very introspective. So 
what I realized was the stuff I was watching was I was watching the people survive. I was watching the people fight. I was watching people experience the worst night of their lives and get through it. Um, and so that's what really kept me coming back. I, I think somewhere, I, I couldn't tell you what part of the book it is in, but there's one of the, your, your chapter headers, you talk about uh, nihilism and how this slasher film gives that unique death and makes kind of somebody an individual in a way kind of thing. Mm. And I, I think that really was was a a statement that I hadn't really thought about, but you know how how true right. it is. It gives your life meaning suddenly that you're you're the guy he shoved the arrow through the neck. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the way most people remember the characters in slasher movies is how they die. You know, machete head, mm -hmm. um, you know, stuff like that. Like, you know, it's, um, oh, you remember the guy in the wheelchair gets a machete in the face. Oh, you remember Kevin Bacon getting harpooned while he's having yeah. sex. Like, yeah. that's what you were, you don't remember anything about Kevin Bacon's character. Oh, and again, I mean, what do you I remember about anyone's character? I, I couldn't tell you a thing about a lot of the Nightmare on Elm Streets, but I remember, you know, the part three where you had the, the, heroin, the heroin addict who was getting her veins pumped full of Freddy with the, the needle hands. I mean, it, exactly. it, just, it becomes that it was those kind of universal moments. Did you get any kind of catharsis from answering this question about um, what was wrong with you? <laughs> Yeah, well, it wasn't so much. Yeah, I mean, yes. If if the answer to a question, if the answer to a very simple question is spending years of my life writing a book, then yeah. Um, you know, I was doing the last set of rewrites on this in August of last year. I, I live in New York and my mom lives in South Carolina where I'm from and, and she got real sick. So I had to go down there in August because um, I'm her healthcare proxy. So um, COVID rules, the first person who comes in the hospital with you is the only person to come in the hospital with you. So if she went into the hospital again, someone need to be there who could put her on a respirator if necessary and all that. And, and that was, that's me legally. So, um, and, and it was very weird to travel. Uh, and it was very weird to be in South Carolina. And that was when the second wave was really going strong. And I'd been having, you know, this was the sort of end of writing this book and was really doing the last 10%, which is usually the part that's the hardest. Like a book's kind of like a joke. It's either funny or it's not. It's not, a joke isn't almost funny. It's just not funny if it's not funny. And with a book, a book either works or it doesn't. A few books almost work. They either work or they don't. And that last 10% to me always makes all the difference. So I was in South Carolina in this, this terrible all orange guest bedroom my mom has writing this book and, and you know, doing and I sort of threw out the last third and just wrote that whole part from scratch. And there was something for me really cathartic about taking Lynette from this woman who was really trapped at 17 years old, who really was spent her whole life scared of what might happen to her and getting her somewhere better and getting her through this book and getting her to this ending and not just getting her to survive, but getting her better, getting her to sort of break this cycle. That was really a good place for me to be in August of 2020 while, you know, thousands and thousands of people were dying, including potentially my mother. Final Girl blends true crime and the slashers together, uh, the true crime often being the most terrifying horror of all. Uh, this also focuses on you remembering the survivors and the victims rather than the killers. Uh, could you elaborate on your combination of slashers and true crime? Well, I mean, the conceit of the book is that these crimes actually happened, right? And then these movies got made based on these true stories. And then the franchises went out and did their their thing. Um, but you had these real women who were the subject of these movies. So part of it was just like, you know, what must it be like to have the worst experience of your life turned into entertainment? Um, and I always wonder that with stuff like the the true crime movies or, you know, like I, Tanya and stuff like that. Like, that must be so weird if you're the victim. And, and especially when you look at something like The People versus O.J. Simpson, which I thought was a great miniseries. But I'm like, God, the families of Nicole Brown Simpson must feel a little conflicted here. Like, this is weird. And there's also a thing in crime fiction, especially based on true crimes, where we all remember John Wayne Gacy or Charles Manson or or, um, or a Ted Bundy, but we don't really remember the names of their victims. Um, I mean, most people could probably tell you the name of the Columbine shooters if 
if pressed, but they probably couldn't tell you the name of a single victim or even make an educated guess. And and I always think that's weird. Um, and it's one of these things that, you know, the in, in the UK, a bunch of psychologists put together a series of guidelines for how to report mass slayings mm -hmm. in ways that didn't um, inspire more people to do the same. And one of the number one things is you don't say the name of the killer and you don't show their face and you say the names of the victims and no one does it. It is a really simple set of guidelines. There's like five of them and no one does it. And it's so weird to me. We're so hypnotized by this messed up notion of celebrity. And like, I'm, I'm pretty old. I was like in university in the nineties. And that was when there was that sort of serial killer chic, you know, there were lots of movies like Natural Born Killers and Copycat and California with a K and all this stuff. And listen, I love Natural Born Killers. It's one of my favorite movies, but there were all these serial killer chic movies. And then like John Wayne Gacy's book came out and people were selling his art for a lot of money. And, you know, and there was, there was just this idea that somehow American Psycho came out. And there was this idea that like, there was this edgy, cool factor to serial killer fetishism. I always thought that was so weird. And even at the time, I was like, I found it a little thin. Um, and so in this, but you know, one of the, the antidotes to that are final girls, you know, they are the women who survive. I mean, yes, we all know Michael Myers and Freddie's faces on lunch boxes, but we also all know, uh, you know, Heather Langenkamp, we all know Laurie Strode. We know, we know those final girls to some extent, you know, they, they are almost as well branded as the killers. They just don't quite have such um, iconic looks like mask and hockey mask and bags over their heads. So they're on fewer t-shirts and get less toys. I mean, thinking back about it, I can, I can remember having a uh, Charlie doesn't surf shirt with a Charles Manson picture on it yeah. while you're listening to Marilyn Manson and, yeah. and you know. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. There was this really weird 90s moment. I, I don't know what we were thinking. It was very strange. We were, I mean, it's because I'm from that same generation kind of thing. I mean, to date myself, I was graduating in the early uh, high school, early 90s. And we just had that nihilistic, you know, apathy where we wanted to embrace that kind of, you know, yeah, I mean it was funny. Like my sister was was a was a punk back in the day and um in the 70s and like you know my mom was furious that she had a Dead Kennedys album because it was, was disrespectful. And like you know you're like well yeah it is. I mean on the one hand that's the point. On the other hand it's like yeah, I kind of get that. Like, I, I don't know where I sit with that. Like, I love the Dead Kennedys. I think they're a really smart band, but I kind of appreciate both sides of that argument. That was one of my first dates with my my wife as we went to see Jello do a spoken word tour coming through oh, our, wow. our campus. So, yeah. How it, was it? It was... It was, you know, you know who he is. He is who he is, and he's going to say what he's going to say. Yeah. And I think at that point he was. It was the uh, whatever the title was about the media, where he was trying to flip the whole narrative on media ruling our lives, kind of stuff. And here we are in, in this year's, and I don't think his message got around the way he wanted it to. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It's also like so many of those hardcore people, like they got there. Was there's this? They all have this reactionary aspect to their personalities like you know like if people are saying you know food is good they're like screw food i hate food and <laughs> and you know you see that like but it often curdles into something weird like i had no idea that xine Cervenka from x which is a band i loved had become this 9-11 truther and this real sort of like QAnon person and and i know a lot of people who my sisters were friends with in the sort of punk scene growing up who are kind of like super right-wing QAnon people now. And it's a really weird, I have a friend who was like a hardcore punk back in the day who's a 9-11 truther and will not stand any discussion of anything else. But it, it, it was a conspiracy full stop. And I just, yeah, it, it's a weird personality facet that sort of overlaps punk and this sort of reactionary thing. I don't know. I don't get it, but they seem to be somewhere on the same spectrum. I, I got that shock myself this year when uh, John Linden, I, I said John Linden from the Sex yeah. Pistols was, was going off of being kind of like COVID denying. And I'm like, 
Whoa, really? I didn't see that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, when did, when did you become what you were rallying against back in the 70s? Yeah, that's crazy. But then again, kind of typical almost. Yeah, yeah, in a way. I mean, he was always going to be what, the opposite of whatever everybody else yeah. was going to be. So Alfred Hitchcock was once asked what scared him. And he said, the police scare him because they could come in and grab him. And evidently he had a, a, a run in when he was very young, where his dad sent him to the local place and got locked up at five just to show him what happens to bad kids. And it scarred him for life kind of thing. So what scares you? Oh, um, well, my answer is really boring. So I apologize. But what scares me is being poor. <laughs> um, I'll be honest, like, you know, I've, I've, I've had those times in my life where I don't know where the money's coming from, or, you know, I realize that it's the middle of the month and there isn't enough at the end to pay the bills. And, you know, where like, I'm looking at, I'm writing blog articles for $25 a pop because that is grocery money. So honestly, not having money is terrifying to me. It's, it's not a very glamorous answer, but it's, uh, it's, it's as honest as I can be. Um, I get the police thing, though. I mean, it's, there are few interactions I've had with the police that I'm not somehow really scared at some, most of the time during. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, but I will say one of the things I've always been surprised that doesn't scare me is violence afterwards terrifying but i i've i've had a few bad encounters in my life getting mugged and things and it's never scary while it's happening it's always sort of like i'm always in disbelief um and then afterwards when you sort of like look in the mirror and you're like oh yikes or or you're sort of like what could have you're like ee. um but during no but yeah please i'll go with please too please and being <laughs> poor all the peas <laughs> police and poverty. I took a horror film class in college, which I think hands down was the best class ever. It kind of like compared social commentary into when the horror films were being created. And I think it should be required for everyone. But what started your interest in horror? Oh, you know, I didn't really read. I mean, I read Stephen King when I was a kid because everyone did and it was fun and it wasn't boring. Um, and I liked it better than science fiction because sci I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do science fiction. I mean, I liked it, but like it had nothing to do with me. It was on other planets. There were robots. Horror took place like down the street and that was always kind of cool to me. But really my love of it was movies. Um, and I came to it the same way everyone did. I watched horror movies with my friends. It was a it was a social thing you did. We had these big sleepovers and or my birthday party every year. We'd rent a bunch of horror movies and then at night go out and play these elaborate games of like capture the flag or tag that would just sprawl over this entire suburban neighborhood and go on for hours. And we'd go home, watch more horror movies, go back out again. I mean, you know, and that's what we did. We had a blast, you know. And and I think that's a pretty common experience, you know. Um there's so many people I know who made the mistake we did of you watch Evil Dead 2 first and you're like, oh my God, this is hilarious. And then you watch Evil Dead 1 and you're like, what the what? This is absolutely <laughs> horrifying. Um, so, you know, it's just, I think it's the best way to sort of like get into horror. Um, and, then in, and then you go off to college and you see, you know, what roommates have what tapes or I guess now DVDs or whatever's on their laptop with them, you know, and like, you're like, oh yeah, you watch Brain Dead too. Or, oh, did you, you, you saw, um, did you know he also made this movie called Meet the Feebles or, you know, you just, it just, um, you know, you just, it, it, it serves as a conversation starter. I think it was Match.com or OkCupid. Which dating app is it that prides itself on its long test that people take? I can't even I can't remember, tell you. but there was one early on where it was like you you just filled out this enormous questionnaire and then they match you. They probably match, but they did a survey on people who wound up partnering with people they've met on Match, and they cross referenced it with all the questions they asked them. And the only question that seemed to be the common denominator between couples that stayed together for more than a year was whether or not they both watched horror movies. It's interesting. Um, 
it's, I guess it's one of those things where you're kind of, if you're willing to share your, your vulnerabilities with somebody in a, in a safety net, maybe, uh, who knows? I'm sure there's some or, logic behind it. Or it just means horror fans are the best people. Well, you know. There we go. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot of horror, some, there's, I guess there's two, the way to phrase this is there's two different kind of schools of, of horror and monsters. Whether you, you throw the monster out there or you hide it and let the imagination run with it, where do you stand? What school do you, you, you fall into? Oh, yeah. No, I, I think it's whatever works for you in the moment. I get both things, but I see too many people getting really committed to what, like, there's a friend of mine who really, really hates that people explain the killer or show the killer too early and stuff. And and he, he goes on and on and on about it in this movie and this movie. And, that. and I'm like, but one of your favorite movies is The Thing. The whole point of The Thing is showing the killer. Like the whole point is showing the monster. And then, and then he gets huffy. Um, and, and so I feel like it's whatever works best for you in the moment, because one of the things like I like not giving too much away. Um, but one of the problems is you don't want the reader to get ahead of you. You don't want them figuring out what's going on before you're ready for them to. And so you really have to be fast with that because readers figure that stuff out quick. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about Halloween H2O is um, how quickly they drop Michael Myers and Laurie Strode face to face in that movie. You expect it to happen like after the hour mark and it happens at like the 40 minute mark and it really throws you off or, um, you know, suddenly in Scream, you've got the killer like right there getting punched and in the house coming after Sydney. And you're like, whoa, that is really early. Um, but it really lets you know, okay, where's this going to go from here? Um, so I think there's a lot of value to it. It all depends on how much you can keep the reader guessing. And one of the things too is I, I do a show for these books and I do a lot of research for them. So I'm doing a lot of, I'm reading a lot of murder books and watching a lot of slashers right now. And one of the things I love in these books is everyone feels a need to do a psycho at the end and be like, and give these really convoluted psychotherapeutic explanations for all these killers. And the explanations are just singularly stupid. I mean, it's everything from like primal hamster trauma to like, you know, people who want to be their sister. I mean, it's just the most ridiculous convoluted BS. I, it's just, and I love it. It's all so beautiful. I'm trying to think, you know, I, I go back and forth on where I stand on it, where, you know, sometimes I'm like, I wish they hadn't shown this, but then I go back and think about Alien. It's like, would Alien yeah. have even been as, as as big as it was if you didn't see that beautiful design? Yeah. Well, and also, you know, I mean, I think different things work at different times. I mean, Halloween works great because you don't know anything about Michael Myers, but Freddie, I don't think would be as resonant if we didn't know his backstory, you know, like, like, like it's just, it's, it's really, it's kind of whatever works. I, I feel like there's not one absolute. I think it also depends on the artistry of like when they build something or like a creature, like sometimes it's horrible. Sometimes it's really well done. Yeah. And like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so much of that movie is about seeing that stuff and how gross it is and how dirty and squalid and like poor and like and just awful and like that's a huge part of the horror in that whereas in something like you know invasion of the body snatchers i mean different movie but like you know so much of that is about not seeing what's going on until you have the the, the garden of eden scene like two-thirds of the way through the movie you know i mean so yeah, I mean, dress to kill, like not knowing who the killer is, is a big deal until the end. At the same time, you know, it's like Friday the 13th, you know, part one, you don't know who the killer is and the reveal's a lot of fun. By part two, like we know who the killer is. And I think what's beautiful is the way that, going back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the way that it was just done in the sense that what was actually on screen versus what our memory creates. I mean, because yeah. there's, I mean, everybody remembers her having that meat hook coming out of her center torso when you never actually see it kind of thing. I mean, it, it's it's all just our imaginations taken over. Well, there was an argument when they were making Texas Chainsaw to push for a PG because they were realizing that, you know, the way Toby Hooper was making the movie they could have toned it down 2% and, and bother a PG. And then they went to the MPAA and they were like, just, 
absolutely not. This is, you know, this is squalid from start to finish. And one of the things I think Texas Chainsaw does so well is one of the most horrifying things about it is how squalid it is. Um, poverty is really, really disgusting to people on that level. And I think, you know, we feel genuinely repulsed when we see, see genuine poverty. And I think that's something that Texas Chainsaw very cleverly capitalized on that, that, that sort of class revulsion we feel. I can, I can definitely see it. Cause yeah, it is, it's, it's hard to watch at times, just not even so for the, the, what's going on, but just the environment that they're in. Yeah. Well, even in Friday the 13th part two, when you see Jason's little shack he lives in, it's disgusting. You know, it's like, it's really, really, these guys smell bad, you know, like, you know, they smell bad. Like there is something about the filth and the dirt and the squalor and how off the grid they are, economically speaking, that's so repulsive to us on a very basic instinctual level. You're going to make me go back and watch uh, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies as a horror now, thinking about how just, you know, how much dirty really those <laughs> pirates are. Yeah. That to me is the most horrible thing. If I'd been abducted by pirates, like forget the like gang rape or the torture, like just you're on this ship with all these greasy dudes with no running water. <laughs> I'm going to shift to um, your, your podcast, Super Scary Haunted Homeschool. Several of the library staff have been listening. Um, I've listened to all of it. Steven talked me into starting it. And then Rachel, one of our reference librarians, really likes it as well. Um, and we want to know, are you going to be continuing your podcasting? So we know that this was kind of in prep for Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires um, and all vampire research. Um, will you be doing more podcasts? I so want to, but I will tell you, man, that pod podcasts are hard. Holy cow. Like, you know, I couldn't tell what was taking me more time. Like it's not like my, my technical ability is limited at best. So doing the tech part of it, the editing and all that was rough, but even harder, the research and the record, I mean, it's just hard. So I, I don't have time. I keep trying to find some partner out there so that I can just focus on um, doing the recording and the writing mm -hmm. and um, they can worry about the technical end um, and getting it out there because I love doing it. I mean, two of those episodes are, are my favorite things I've ever done, period, full stop. Um, but I just... I, it just eats up so much time. Holy cow. But you did yeah. a fantastic job. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The Dracula episode about Mina Harker and the um, World War One episode are two of my favorite things I've ever done. Um, just sort of following those down the research rabbit hole and, and recording them was a blast. And it makes me so sad because I so want to do more. I can tell you that I, I was sitting at work during the COVID times and I was like, oh, Grady Hendrix has a podcast. <laughs> and I'm sitting there at the front desk. I got my coworkers around it. I click play thinking it's going to be, you know, just ready to go. And then you hit us with those opening lines about Dracula and his, his, his junk. And I have never clicked out of a thing so quickly in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got to say, you know, John Shirley's Dracula in Love is really deserves to take a bow all the time. That book is so over the top. It doesn't even see the top anymore. But I, I tell once I, I'm like, I can't believe I just heard this. Somebody else needs to hear this. How can I get away with sharing this at work without coming off as weird? I, I, I'm done. Well, you know, no, no, no. And one of the weirdest things for me was when I was putting that podcast together, I was like, you know, I need a COVID project, just something to focus on. And as I started putting it together and I realized that, you know, all the folklore about vampires, it all comes from plagues and, and epidemics, pandemics. They're all, they're a pandemic monster. And I was like, that's weird. Like, you know, it's one of those things, writing a book, you focus on one thing for so long, you just start to get all these weird coincidences. And it's, it's the same thing as when you buy a, a minivan and you're like, oh my God, everyone owns a minivan. It just happens to be the lens you're seeing the world through all of a sudden. But, but for me, it's really bizarre. I enjoy it. It's one of the fun things about writing is sort of the psychedelic side effects. And your vampire in the Southern Book Club's guide is a different take on the creature. How did you decide on his like methods of survival to 
gain sustenance and as as well as like financial longevity. Oh yeah, well, you know, with the vampires, you have to make a decision up front supernatural or not supernatural um if they're not and i wanted mine not to be supernatural even though it's a vampire we know they don't exist but i wanted them to be conceivable um and so that meant the vampire couldn't be like a dead wizard who just happened to be cursed and couldn't get into heaven uh it had to be something biologically conceivable and so instantly okay he's not scared of crosses he can't turn into a mist he can't turn into a bat like where would all the masks go um he can cross running water he has a reflection like you know i mean those are just non-supernatural things so um or those are supernatural aspects of vampire lore so then it's like okay so what are the things you keep the, the longevity and the, the blood and why would the vampire need blood because honestly the human blood supply is like three to nine thousand calories um and that's sort of like that's a week you know so you can't have a vampire that's dropping a victim once a week i mean every year you've murdered 52 people like or 56 i can't remember how many weeks are in a year 52 um and so that's a lot of victims you know that's not it's gonna be hard to cover that up so i thought well what if vampires you know just had to filter out the impurities in their blood what if people were their sort of human dialysis machine and so that made sense to me but then you know it's like oh you know he'll probably like vampire bats have something in saliva that's psychoactive that kind of numbs the wound and maybe makes it really pleasurable for the person um and keeps them wanting to be sucked on and have their blood supply you know harvested like this and, and then, you, you know, you start getting into stuff like, you know, some people were like, well, does he have hypnotic powers? And I was like, no, he's just a dude. Like, you know, I, I'm not sure I could, I, I think every woman I know has been in some situation where she has felt in physical danger and she's in that situation because someone pressured her, usually a dude, just pressured her into it and she wanted to get along and winds up somewhere she knows is dangerous and should not be. Like, that's just the patriarchy. That's not mind control. <laughs> like, um, that's just women being told from birth to be nice and not make a fuss. So yeah, so that's sort of how we wound up with James Harris. Kind of switching gears a little bit here. You've, like you said, this is your fifth book. You've got My Best Friend's uh, Exorcism that's being developed by Amazon, I believe. We got the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires that's being done by, uh, I, I forget who, the TV's, uh, the, as a TV series. Yeah. I, I've heard rumors that this one, is our, uh, the Final Girl Support Group is already going through a television adaption. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Final Girls, we're wrapping up the deal right now. Um, Southern Book Club is a TV series supposedly with Amazon. We'll see. Okay. Um, My Best Friend's Exorcism is shooting. I think they've wrapped actually. Uh, and that's starring Elsie Fisher, who was in uh, Eighth Grade, the Bo Burnham movie, which is phenomenal if people hadn't seen it. And Horror Store, I'm adapting into a feature film right now myself for New Republic, uh, who are the people who did 1917 and Black Swan. Um, so that's that's been eye-opening to be turning one of my books into a movie. I'm like, who's this writer? Someone should have fired him. Yeah, and so that's, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff out there. What's it, what's it like from that experience of turning something that you've put on in page into a visual format? Um, well, for horror stores, it's really rough because books are so interior, like they're all from the point of view of a character. And that's one of the big joys and one of the strengths of a book is you're inside someone's head. And that's where the interest in the book is. I mean, Final Girl Support Group is just a bunch of idiots running around and getting in and out of cars and occasionally dying if you're not seeing it through Lynette's point of view. But a movie is relentlessly exterior. Like you can't show someone thinking in a movie. It is completely impossible. No one wants to see that. You can show someone scratching their head. You can show them looking at something. You can show them having a flashback, but you can't just show the act of thought or feeling. Um, it's just not possible. And so they're radically different from each other. And, and so they're really tough. Writing screenplays has made me a much better book writer. Writing books has made me a much worse screenplay writer. And adapting one of my books into a movie has been really hard because it's very tough to know how much the producers want you to change. I wrote horror store specifically not to be adapted into a film. I was really angry at movies at that point. And, um, I was like, this book, no one will ever adapt it into a movie. And so the entire ending involves water and rats, which are two things you don't, that are so expensive, you can't put them in a movie. It just blows your budget right there. Animals and big, big 
water tanks. Um, and the producers on there are like, yeah, we want both those in the end. And I'm like, really, guys? I, I you know, so it's it's been really interesting and and really difficult. Horror Story is one of the ones that I've I started off with a audiobook version of it and didn't realize oh, how much yeah. I was missing, but from the audio's perspective of hearing Bronson Pinchow read the the the, the chapter headers, it, he yeah. is. I I would never have picked because I'm used to Perfect Strangers, so I, you know, in my head, yeah. he's got an accent, and then suddenly there he is. I'm like going, this is the best reader I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, he's phenomenal. <laughs> We've talked about the fiction. You got a a couple nonfiction ones, but I want to talk about one in particular because we are both horror fans here. Um, Paperbacks from Hell. The, oh yeah. The pulp exploitation of the 70s and the 80s, obviously, uh, you know, based on on kind of what's lingering there behind you, uh, you had to do a lot of reading. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I I read, God, I think 300 and something books. 326, I think, is the number to write that. And I've read so many more since then. Um, it's weird for it's 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 not normal. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. But yeah, I mean, it was kind of like, I was just going to these these paperback swap shops and being like, these have these big horror sections. I've never heard of Ken Yulo or Barry Wood or Elizabeth Ingstrom or any of these. Who the hell are they? And the only way to do it is to, to read it, you know? Um, and so it's been really, you know, there's always more I can learn, which has been really fascinating. I just discovered a delightful series of books by this guy, Robert Walker, who wrote a bunch of serial killer novels with really, really lurid covers in the late 80s, 88 and 89, um, like uh, Razor's Edge and Dead Man's Float. And they're all about Dr. Dean Grant, a, uh, a forensic specialist. And he's solving these serial killer crimes. And they are fantastic fantastically stupid oh my god they're so much fun like they they've got that kind of like glorification of fbi profilers and medical examiners that were common in serial killer fiction after silence of the lambs where these people were like gods but and then they've got sort of the bizarro serial killers like one is a twin dwarf who's completely covered with long hair that grows out of every part of his body except his head. And so he's bald on top, but he has like long hair growing out of his nipples and his earlobes. He's like, he looks like cousin it, but he's got a bald spot. And so he whips his brother with a bullwhip made of human hair until his brother goes and scalps people to make a wig for him. And, and, and the wigs never work right. And so he always makes him go out and do more. And then he decides he needs baby scalps. So he has to go kill pregnant women and scalp unborn babies to make a tiny little baby head wig. It is so stupid. But the best thing is Dr. Dean Grant has all this medical science for him. And the medical science is completely fabricated. Like it makes it like he sprays a spray on the ground that shows where dampness is. And it's like, that's not, you could just feel it. You could literally just put your hand on the ground and, and see where it's damp. You don't need a spray. Um, he's got lasers that can build a, uh, you could take a human hair and the laser will shoot into the human hair and then reconstruct the person's profile and skull from the hair. Uh, I mean, it is the most ridiculous stuff you've ever read in your life. And it's phenomenal and it's kind of nice because it kind of deconstructs the glorification of that csi medical science thing i mean as we've already seen in courtrooms forensic science is mostly just lucky guessing uh often sends the wrong people to death row um and so it's so fun to see this dude inadvertently completely deconstructing all of that it's it's really these books are a lot of fun what was your biggest takeaway from reading them all? Besides, I mean, how would you say it helped you as a writer besides making you a Bram Stoker award-winning author? <laughs> you mean doing paperbacks from hell? Yes, sir. Oh, you know, I don't think it did anything for me writing-wise. I don't really think it did, but it was really, really gratifying on a, on a really deep level to be able to call attention to some of these writers who'd sort of disappeared. You know, their books just weren't in print anymore. I mean, people like Ken Greenhall and, and Barry Wood and Elizabeth Ingstrom, just people who'd kind of fallen off the map who wrote really amazing books. And a lot of them were women, you know, who often get written out of this story. And there's this impression that horror is this boys club. And 
It's not. I mean, it's just we happen, you know, just the boys get the best publicists. It's you you think about the 80s, which were all about blockbuster books, and sure, there's Stephen King, but right neck and neck with them were Anne Rice and V.C. Andrews. Yet somehow we come mm. away with this idea, and you know, and, and it's partially because V.C. Andrews, you know, she's dead, and Anne Rice writes about Jesus now, and Stephen King is just a prolific author who writes a book a year, Rain or Shine. Um, and so he's sort of like this monster dinosaur who really overshadows everyone's, and 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 rightly so. I'm a big King fan myself, but but you you know, it's, it, you, it's, he overshadows a lot of people. So, um, you know, so it's more the vagaries of how we remember things rather than the fact that women just weren't writing horror, that we think of women as not writing horror. Lisa Tuttle's book, A Nest of Nightmares, is probably the best book of horror short stories I've ever read in my life. But yeah, so, so that was the really gratifying thing is just to bring a lot of these people back into print and just... And also to give some attention to the cover artists who would often have their signatures cropped off or blurred on the covers and not they weren't allowed to take credit because art directors didn't want them becoming famous because they didn't want to pay them more. And it was really nice to give those folks a moment in the sun because they're really talented and really amazing and came up with these iconic covers. So it was really nice to give sort of a name to the, the nameless to a lot of these folks just on a personal level. Yeah, and it was nice to win the Stoker Award. Our fiction selector, Rachel, has wanted me to say thank you because of that book. You have gotten some of these books back in print, which has allowed me to read Nest, which was a, a beautiful <laughs> thing all into itself. Oh, any book where cockroaches eat a human butt, four stars. <laughs> Um, yeah, Ness, you know, I had a lot of issues because I helped out with that Valancourt line. I was like, guys, are you sure? Like Will and James were like, we are putting Nest out. I'm like, are you sure that's the foot forward? Man, they were right and I was wrong. People love that yeah. book. Hey, I've, I've, I know it's not been released, re-released yet, but I, through our interlibrary loan department, I even even though you've told me the best part is the middle, I asked them to request a, a section, a, a copy of Little People. I wish and... they could bring that back into print <laughs> just to get that Hector Garrido cover back into circulation. Unfortunately, um, what I got did not have a, it just had the standard book, library book binding cover. So it was just a uh, pale grain. So I was disappointed in that, but yeah. <laughs> have you read it already? I, I have. I mean, one of the things I don't talk about so much, but I love the freaking meet cute with the SS concentration camp guard and the Holocaust victim, like who like become a loving couple. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's, it's, they are going to, they are going to time out in the middle of this for a rom-com with a concentration camp guard and a Jewish concentration camp victim. It, it is. I mean, the, the amount of just weirdness and, and I'm now, you yeah. give me a new one. I'm going to look up here with, with Dr. Dean Grant that just the bizarro oh, yeah. is what I need. <laughs> Definitely. The Robert Walker books are up and down. Dead Man's Float is the first one and it's fun. Razor's Edge is the best one. That's the one with the dwarf. And that's the best one. Um, Burning Obsession is kind of boring. And uh, Dying Breath, I've got a copy on my on the way to me. And I'm kind of I'm I'm kind of I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I live in hope. I'm an optimist. While I love horror films, I'm more of like a, I like the visuals. Um, I was nervous about reading horror, so I haven't really read a lot of horror because I feel like I make it bigger when I'm reading it, so it's scarier to me. Oh, sure. But Yes, and you do a great job of kind of balancing horror and comedy. So I was able to get through those really scary scenes, even though the horror, um, especially with Southern Book Club, my I, I had the goosebumps and it was very the creature horror where it was like you could feel it like scratching and it was fantastic. But then I, I was relatively unscathed and was able to get to the next scene. And um, how do you balance the two elements of horror and comedy? That's that's nothing I do on purpose. I honestly just try to write as realistically as possible. Um, and, and I find that in life, like the funniest joke you've ever heard comes right before you get the phone call that your mom's in the hospital. Like, you know what I mean? Like it just, our lives don't have a genre, you know, they sort of cross genres in a really awkward and, and clumsy manner. Um, but when I'm doing later drafts of a book, I really do try to hone them so that like the jokes land and the horror lands and they're really close to each other. I mean, the sort of setup payoff construction, the, the misdirection you need, the callbacks, um, even the fact that like in horror, if you've got a really good 
something terrible happens, you call it a gag, the same way you call it a gag in comedy. Like they're very, very close together. I think uh, Stephen King says it in uh, History of Horror that with Eli Roth, where he's like, comedy is when it's happening to someone else. Horror is when it becomes personal. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's um, Mel Brooks who said, um, comedy is when you slip on a banana peel and fall down an open sewer grate and die. Tragedy is when I get a paper cut. Yes, yes. I loved using that one myself as well. <laughs> Um, obviously, as, as you're kind of touching here, horror and comedy are kind of the same in, in a sense that you are building up tension until there's a payoff, whereas the comedian will go for that punchline that break, likes everybody relieved. Horror tends to kind of ratchet up until you get that scare or death. How do you find it best to relieve the tension that you're building up in a story? Honestly, you want to keep surprising people. I mean, that's how they keep turning the pages. So for me, I constantly want to sort of yank the rug out from under folks. So one of the ways I can either go totally serious if things are getting goofy or go totally goofy when things are getting serious. And one of the things that I sort of feel like as part of my job is applying the reality principle to horror tropes. Um, and you've got to apply it to them enough, but know when to stop before they break. Like you, you make any horror trope too realistic and it just gets dumb because it's all dumb. So you want to stop before it goes over the line. So like with um, my best friend's exorcism, you know, an exorcism, well, who's going to be performing an exorcism these days? You know, I mean, they're going to be super enthusiastic about that. And then like exorcisms go on for hours, sometimes days. Like, are there meal breaks? Are there snack breaks? How do you not get it? Like, do you have the snack in the room with the demoniac? Like, that's kind of weird. You're, they're like puking and you're sitting across and they're eating. Like, you got to take a snack break to the kitchen. Like, what did you bring? Like, you know, are you, are you carb loading or do you want like really to go high on protein? Like what? Like that's so that's real. Like when if you take a pee break, do you keep your partner in the exorcism with you, you know, to make sure one of you doesn't get separated and targeted by Satan? Like, how do you do this? And so, but you don't want to stop, you want to stop before it gets ridiculous. So that's sort of what I try to do. It's kind of like a you you kind of feel for the priest that brought the uh, the pea soup to the uh, Linda Blair exorcism for the the snack break. Exactly, <laughs> he's like you know it's so cold in that room. I love a nice cup of soup. I find it so oh, man, really, really like now it's just granola bars. My roommate in college was what is it the filmmaker the person behind the camera? What is that position? Cinematographer. Yes, yeah. My um, roommate in college, her grandfather was the cinematographer for The Exorcist. Really? What was what mm -hmm. was her name? What's her last name? Her last name was Blesser. I don't know what his was. Oh my God. I can't remember who shot The Exorcist. Wow. Uh, I, I think uh, it, as we're seeing nowadays with uh, like Jordan Peele and, and, and you mentioned uh, the Halloween series with, with Danny McBride now directing some of those, just seeing the, the, comedi the comedians now being behind the films, just kind of how, you know, two sides of the same coin that horror and comedy really are. Yeah. And Alana Glazer is in that pregnancy horror movie that's coming out now, which uh, is uh, which is a dead serious horror movie about pregnancy. And it's I, I'm really irritated by it because um Pregnancy scare books were such a big, big deal uh, back in the day. And then they sort of got co-opted by Lifetime movies. And I was like, no, someone needs to do a horror movie about pregnancy because so many people I know are doing IVF and all this stuff. And it really takes over their lives. And now these jokers are doing it. So I'm bummed. I thought that was my ticket to the big time. <laughs> If you could um, live in a horror movie universe, which I don't know why you would want to live in a horror movie, but if you had to, which one would you choose and why? None. Are you kidding? That's awful. Yeah, you have to. You have, have to. Have to. Jesus. <laughs> Man, that is, a, you know, I think what I'd pick is after Day of the Dead, they found an island, they're on it, they've got supplies. <laughs> Zombies are way the hell off on the mainland. They're just going to restart civilization on an island. I'm there. I can do that. Okay. It's depressing. There's no more movies. There's no more new music, but I can deal <laughs> with that. And frankly, I could even deal with Day of the Dead in the underground bunker too. I would just be really focusing on ratcheting down tensions between everyone, you know, so it didn't turn into like a giant total massacre situation. Like, like I really... I would have put someone else in charge of research besides a mad scientist. Obviously writing books requires a lot of research. What is the strangest thing in your search history? 
Man, I don't know. I really love the research. Like it's my favorite part of writing is doing the research. Um, and so probably I would have to say back when I was writing my best friend's exorcism and I was really like, you know, deliverance ministries, deliverances are sort of the Protestant version of exorcisms. And I used to have uh, links to, there were a bunch of churches that had um, their deliverances on on YouTube and stuff. And those were fun to watch. Um, but most of them have been pulled since then. Um, I, I think they weren't authorized to be up there. And then the other thing is I had, I used to have a, a whole stack of, I'm not a big metal head, but when I wrote We Sold Our Souls, which is my heavy metal horror novel, I, I, I asked a lot of metal heads sort of what I should be listening to and all this. And, and they're like the sweetest, nicest, most generous people. And so I used to have a pile of like napkins from bars and scraps of paper and receipts that just had band names and albums scrawled on them. And like, you know, it was like, it was like, you know, Cannibal Corpse, pig death and all this just on the just written in increasingly drunken handwriting on this stuff and I always used to keep that on my desk because it cheered me up a lot what has been your favorite books that you've read recently oh um gosh I, everything I read is old because it's for work um I do have to say though I did read um Oyinkin Braithwaite's uh, My Sister the Serial Killer. Um, she's a Nigerian author and the book came out last year, I think. Um, and it's great. Yeah, it's basically two sisters and one of them's a serial killer. Uh, and the other just feels like obligated to like clean up after her sister. So it's it's really a sibling book, but it's I really loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I think I saw the, the movie adaptation of that with Mike Myers. <laughs> <laughs> How I married how I married an axe murderer. <laughs> oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, we are a library based podcast. Um, how have libraries impacted your life? I mean, that's the I grew up in libraries. I mean, I was a latchkey kid uh, back when that was actually what you called kids of divorced parents. So, uh, when your parents are divorced, you're always waiting for someone to pick you up, and you're always getting dropped off. And so I was just always waiting in libraries. Like my dad worked at a hospital. They had a medical library. My mom was taking classes at the College of Charleston. They had a college library. There was a library downtown. I mean, I just lived in libraries. Um, and so I always just sort of owed a lot to librarians who just let me hang out and, you know, check things out of the adult section, even when I had a kid's card. Uh, it was always It was always nice for me. So yeah, libraries, like Tarzan was raised by apes. I was raised by librarians. What is your spirit animal? Well, this is a little difficult for me um, because I think if there's a true spirit animal for, me, animal for me, it's the chihuahua. Just, you know, small, high energy, enormously adorable. No one can be mean to a chihuahua. Uh, they get those big eyes. But but the real, there's a, so years ago, I did a thing called the Great Stephen King Reread for Tor, where I basically read every single Stephen King book in order and then wrote about them. And I started, it took me about five years because because King doesn't write short books. I started right before I signed the contract for Horror Store, which was my first book I wrote by myself, like a big boy. And and I, I did it because I needed the money. Tor paid, I think, 25 bucks a pop. And like that, that was grocery money. Uh, if I did, I, if I did, four of those a month, that's a hundred bucks, that's groceries. Um, and when I finished it, I finally finished right after I'd won the Stoker for um, Paperbacks from Hell. So it was this period where a lot of things in my life changed, but the thing that stayed constant was reading these big, fat Stephen King books. And so in my head, I developed this little tiny Stephen King homunculus who like sits on my shoulder and is my friend and has nothing to do with the real life Stephen King, but just was a friend to me for a really long time and and gave me career advice and and got me through some real hard times, um, you know. And uh, and so yeah, so so my spirit animal is a tiny Stephen King riding a Chihuahua. I can say that. Uh... I know you went back and talked about this earlier with the, the $25 gigs, but it was this summer of sleaze and the rereading of Stephen oh. King's where I, I think I first got introduced to you. And I have never regretted you doing that. So bless you for doing it. <laughs> oh yeah, no. And I love doing it. I mean, writing those summer of sleaze articles for tour, it gave me an excuse to read those books. And that was what my editor saw who was like, look, 
I know you've got a, a novel on your contract, but would you ever want to make a book out of these tour columns? Because, I mean, we probably won't buy it, but pitch it because I'd love to read it. And so I pitched it and they bought it and then I had to write it in 10 months. So, um, but yeah, I, and that book really changed my life a lot. So yeah, I mean, doing that stuff because it was fun and because I needed the money was, was huge for me. Tour is, tour was formative. I owe a lot to those guys. Obviously writing is, is kind of a, a performance art in a way. Do you have any kind of rituals or habits that you have to do in order to write certain foods, uh, music, comforts? No, the only thing I really need is to write, uh, is, is to write. I mean, it's whatever tricks you into writing. One of the things that's important to me is I keep my life pretty boring and it's nice to have a routine. And also I write my word countdown. I mean, I've got, I, for years I did it on my calendar app and then Apple upgraded its OS and was no longer compatible with its old calendars. And I lost like, I say three, cause it's less sad, but it may have been five years of like, daily word count and my sort of work diary. So I do it on paper now and I've got two calendars full to so about two years. Uh, just every day I write down my word count and, and try to make sure I hit it. My last question is, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? No, I mean, Final Girl Support Group comes out on July 13th. And then later this year, I've got a nonfiction book called These Fists Break Bricks, which is about Kung Fu movies coming to America, which was such a research rabbit hole. Holy cow. This friend of mine, Chris Bajali, has this huge poster and ad collection. And he's like, oh, would you want to write a little text for this? And I was like, I would only want to do this if we did it the right way. And we did it as an actual book we did research for. And it ate our lives. And I mean, and we wound up up finding out, I mean, everything from an 11 year old boy who made the first Bruce Lee exploitation movie after Bruce Lee died that became a global blockbuster to a karate movie from the 60s that was actually a CIA front to, I mean, just some of the craziest, craziest stuff. Um, it was wild to do this. And uh, so that's coming out later this year. And then otherwise, if people want to get more of my garbage, just gradyhendrix.com is has links to all my stuff, all the events I'm doing. I'm doing a ton of events for uh, online and in person for Final Girls. And uh, by this fall, it'll be all in person because that seems to be where the world's moving. Yay. Uh, all my social media junk is up there, all my book reviews, everything. So there you go. I'm sure you've already seen it, but in case you haven't, uh, what is it? Iron Kicks. Uh, what the heck was the name of this movie? It was Kung Fu. Oh, uh, Iron Fist and, and Kung Fu Kicks. Kung Fu Kicks, yes. Where that, just the marriage of hip hop and, and, and Kung Fu. Yeah. And, no, I wrote that. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I worked with this. That's sort of where this book came from is I worked with the company Wild Bear in Australia to make that. And um and, and, and wrote it with them, which is weird to write a documentary, but a lot of fun. And there was so much stuff we couldn't get into that, that we, that, that sort of like, when my friend Chris came to me about writing this book, I was like, great, I'm already halfway there. And, and see, look at this, you're, you're I, I'm over here recommending things that you've written without even knowing that you've written. <laughs> I know, it makes me feel like I'm really like doing a bad job publicizing my projects. <laughs> I need to, I need to step up. I can say, I just, I don't have anything else to add, but I just want to say that this has been like a, a, a kid in the candy store moment for you, for me, just because, oh. and you are in my top three of, oh, thank and you. I'll, I'll say genre writers, but I'm going to put you above just genre writers. But you and Paul Tremblay and Stephen Graham Jones right now are my, my go-to horror people. And you are, are definitely in the top three. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Paul, Paul and Stephen are great, even though Paul will not eat pickles. And Stephen has weird condiment preferences that I think it's better not to get into. Like, they are two of the nicest, weirdest people I've ever met in my life. And they present as very normal. I may have been trying to arrange my schedule to, to get to hear you and Steven uh, do your Scottish talk here recently, but oh, the Times yeah. Jones just did not line oh, up for me. It's, I'm so bummed. Like I'm only doing a couple of events with Steven this summer because of our schedules. And it's such a bummer because he's one of the most fun people to talk to on a panel just because he'll run with things wherever they go. You know, it's it's a lot. Of, we He and Sarah Langan and I did a panel. I think Paul did a panel a while back. Oh no, it was Alma Katsu 
Paul and Stephen and I, and and we wound up really talking about cannibalism and sort of the ins and outs of it. And I think the poor moderator was so appalled. They kept trying to get it back to the books. And we're like, no, wait, 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 wait. Are we talking ground chuck here? Like, what are we doing? How are we cooking this? They are all on my wish list of people to get here. And I, if I can get you all three at once and have that conversation, I would let you go <laughs> as long as you want. Well, thank you very much for taking some time with us today. It, is, it has been wonderful. Oh, no, thanks for doing it, dude. I really appreciate you guys spreading the word. Thank you, Grady, so much for joining us at BCPL Unstacked. Several of Grady Hendrix's titles are available in the library collection for checkout, including Final Girls Support Group. Final Girls Support Group can be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Also, check out Grady's website, gradyhendrix.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.